Hey, everybody, welcome to Social Media Makers, the podcast where every Wednesday we'll bring you fast paced, powerful 15 or so minute episodes meant to inform, educate, and inspire around a variety of topics, including trends in all things tech for the professional salon industry. Before I get started, remember that on Sundays you can find me hosting Beautycast Network's Mastering Beauty Podcast, featuring brilliant guests sharing their best advice on building sustainable and successful careers. If you like either of those podcasts or either of these podcasts, please consider hitting the like button or sharing a review. Both help others to find the podcast. I'm Gordon Miller, your podcast host. Thanks for tuning in. And today I'm going to talk about 2024, using 2023 as a bit of a reference point. I'm going to tie it with math, one of my favorite topics, and, um, and powerful context. I mean, I think that's what is so important about math when we think about the professional beauty industry, which I don't think we spend as much time talking about math as we should. And um, importantly, as much as many of us don't like to admit it, math is pretty amazing. Everything in life pretty much boils down to math. I mean, everything. Art, all about math. Music, completely rooted in math. Science, of course, there's so much science in the professional beauty industry, including biology. All you can boil it pretty much down to math. And in business, oh my gosh, so much math. And what I love, I think, most about it is that um, math is objective. You know, it, it, it just is. It, it's not emotional. You know, it, it's, it's really important. Um, and that last point is so critical um, because, again, if you don't like math, find somebody who does who can help you interpret some of the important information that's coming to you. And we're not always taking advantage of it. In our industry, what I've discovered over time is that, you know, too many think of math, understand math, or, or don't understand math kind of in, in the same way that I understand or, or don't understand hair color. Um, and, and having done what I do for a very long time and not being a hairdresser, Having listened to and sat in and been around hair color education and colorists for for decades, I know just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> I mean, it's it's true, and the same kind of applies to some who are more technically proficient, more artistic, but math is not their thing. And so, I, I think it's important to recognize that in our in in ourselves. And understand the potential when we misunderstand something to actually do damage to ourselves or, or to somebody else. Um, and, and that would be in the case, for example, of mentors and coaches who maybe don't understand math, but just say things that they believe are true, but they don't have that self-awareness that maybe math is not their thing. Um, there's some popular coaches who've been, you know, I've run across five people, one just a couple of days ago, owners of salons who pretty much lost everything basically had their businesses destroyed because they've been listening to the wrong coaches and who, who may have lots of things that they, they do that are just fine. I'm not really sure, but fundamentally don't seem to understand math. And, and I can tell that just by listening to those folks. And so, I can see how it could get some people who connect with them into pretty serious trouble. So, again, math, really, really important. And so, um, yeah, I uh, dig into this a little bit. All right. So, since the beginning of the pandemic for some added context. And again, back to numbers, you know, in, in spite of all kinds of things that have gone a little bit sideways in the world and coming in a pandemic, a lot of concern about the whole, you know, do it yourself phenomena that was happening. The industry has done really, really well. I mean, really well, including in 2023. Um, since the pandemic, we've seen annual growth 
industry-wide at about 7% annualized and compounded. Um, and so, and, and, and kind of adjacent to that, looking at brands where we have a lot of information that's public um, and also conversations behind the scenes with brands, um, it's been really, really great. I mean, to come through pandemic well, um, of course, there were bumps for so many and including a lot of brands. And But these last couple of years have been really, really great for the professional beauty industry. And yet coming into the new year, there was so much conversation about how many were struggling at the salon level, struggling as professionals, um, where 2023 was not a good year. For me, you know, I, I talk to people every day in the industry about how they're doing, what they're doing, you know, what's interests them, what challenges are they, you know, bumping up against. And I was really excited in 2023 to have so many positive conversations, talk to so many people who were killing it, really, really doing well. And that was, for me, the 80%. You know, 80% of people I talked to were really having great years. 20% perhaps were struggling. It might not even have been that much. But taking a big step back, listening to the larger industry, it's clear that it's, it may be the reverse. You know, that a lot of salons and a lot of professionals didn't do very well in 2023. And it really had me pondering, like, what... The heck is happening out there and, and why is it that you know we see you know such disparity between you know two groups you know perhaps three groups you know those who've done really well those who maybe kind of were a little bit even and those who've had a rough time of it and so um yeah uh, a lot to think about a lot to talk about I'll, I'll do kind of the short version of that today but um yeah it's interesting again contextually math Looking back at 2008, 2009, that, that's pre-pandemic, the last like big event in the world economically that impacted the industry. And the industry, we, we lost as much as 15% of the industry's revenue base across the entire industry. I mean, it affected pretty much every part of the industry. And you know, we always think about it, you know, balayage is always mentioned, um, not, excuse me, not balayage, um, ombre, the opposite, <laughs> the opposite of balayage, ombre. Um, you know, kind of came out of 2008, 2009. And that was about giving clients a color service that kind of allowed them to stretch their appointments. And of course, that was meant to be a solution to keep people getting hair color, but who knows ultimately what it meant, but we do know a great reduction in spending. And it does not appear that we've gained the money we lost in 2008, 2009 back yet. Um, the industry was purported to be somewhere between 60 and $64 billion um, at the salon level, meaning if you aggregate all the salons in the US, we were, and this was you know talked about a lot. It showed up in a lot of presentations, research supporting it. Again, we were in that 60 to $64 billion um, salon revenue um, kind of category. Coming through pandemic, you know, um, the last report I saw coming into pandemic, I think it was 2019 numbers, were 50, I think it was $54 billion. So that's a huge disparity. Again, it's about a 15% reduction over the course of the many years since you know, 2008, 2009. And again, it does not appear that we've bounced back yet. So I think that's important just to say you know, from, from a contextual point of view. And then when we... Again, listening to folks and the challenges that they've had and thinking about 2003 and also talking to client friends and just, you know, so here's some kind of big ideas, I think, to, 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 to be thinking about as we listen to the conversations about the coming year. So big, big picture, industry-wide, what are some of the things that happened? Well, number one, coming out of pandemic, we had a huge proliferation of coaches. It kind of reminds me of like 20 years ago when we had a huge proliferation, kind of the first wave of those doing extensions. There was not a lot of great extension uh, education yet. 
might have been a little farther than that. Might have been closer to 25, 30 years. But whenever it was, in the beginning era of extensions, kind of going mainstream, they were kind of happening big in Europe. It was kind of when the Paris Hilton um, extensions launched. Um, there was a lot of bad work. Um, there was a lot of bad product. You know, it was a different era. It was new. And so the point of that is kind of metaphorically is when something kind of hits as a trend and it just kind of races to market, there's often a lot of not so good in it. And the big challenge for the consuming public or, or even professional consuming public is to find our way to the good stuff. I think the same is so true of coaches. I think there was like no barrier to entry. Anybody wanted to put up a shingle and say they were coach and they were smart and they knew what they were doing and could market themselves as such, you know, was suddenly in the coaching business. And looking back, I think a lot of bad came out of that. A lot of good, I know some great coaches, but a lot of bad. Um, so first off, in that rise of coaching and coaches came a rise in voices or the volume of voices. Going back to Clubhouse is probably one of the best examples. I mean, all of a sudden there was a platform where people could talk and some talk really well. Doesn't mean what they were saying was true necessarily, but they were good talkers. Um, and again, kind of a mixed bag. But there was a lot of misinformation coming out, a lot of what I've often called fake beauty news. And I'm just going to go through kind of the, some of the high points. Um, so big conversations about price increases, so many conversations about price increases. And a lot of it kind of contextually was, was you, can, you can charge anything you want. You're not going to lose any clients. You're that valuable. Um, there wasn't a lot of conversation about how to figure out what was an appropriate price increase. And there wasn't a lot of good conversations about how to price really, really price, which is somewhat of a science. Um, so I think it's anybody I know who pays attention to the larger industry and is looking at what happened with prices and even some of the external stuff, you know, has the opinion that we overcorrected. Uh, many of us have been saying for decades, literally decades, that the industry was underpricing. Pandemic happened. We kind of gave ourselves permission and there's a lot of good in this to increase our prices. But contextually, from a client perspective, the current price pre-increase, that's what they know. And so we react to that. Like, what was the increase? You know, was it 5%, 10%, 20%, 100%? You know, what was the increase that I felt as a consumer? So much of the price increase conversation was about the increases in the cost of doing business, predominantly in the cost of hair color. Um, there were some who, you know, had rent increases or certainly were pandemic costs and just lots of things that were complicated. But price increases were happening at the service level. And a lot of the industry appeared to apply their increases as a percentage or what they saw in the news as a percentage. You know, inflation is 10% as an example. I'll just use a very round number. And so, therefore, I must increase my prices by at least 10%. Okay, that is a really simplistic, overly simplistic way to think about prices uh, because that big picture on the news, general inflation cost of goods thing has very little necessarily to do with your business, your career. So you, you've got to get a lot more granular. Point of all this is the industry appears to have overcorrected on its failure to increase prices kind of for at least a decade. And that overcorrection arguably has had a blowback from consumers. And we read about this across other industries as well. Restaurants is a good example. We've kind of settled into a new post-pandemic world, and a lot of clients are reacting to this. So, A, maybe they can't feel they can afford something. Some of it's emotional. Prices went too high. I don't like that. Therefore, I'm not going to spend my money there, perhaps. Others have their own personal finances kind of settle in post-pandemic and make decisions around that and look at a certain service they might get. They might love somebody. And I've had friends do this, say, 
yeah, I love my hairdresser, but I used to pay, you know, 150 and now I'm paying 200 and it doesn't feel right. So I'm going somewhere else and I'm going to find something closer to the prices that make me comfortable. That's interesting. It's psychology, you know, um, nobody should take it personal, but these are the dynamics of consumers and how they think about spending that we must think about as we think about how we price our services, how we how, kind of how we manage and run and, and market our businesses, you know. Consumer expectations, consumer behavior, that's all highly relevant stuff. So again, a lot of, I think, emotional information about price increases that went perhaps for some beyond common sense. And now many have felt a blowback in 2023. And by the way, it's really important to say consumers don't explain their behavior to us very rarely. You know, it's not the typical consumer that leaves a salon and does so saying out loud, oh, you're too expensive. Or, oh, I didn't feel cared for. Or, or, oh, I didn't feel like I got what I was thinking I would get. I mean, then they rarely have those conversations with us. They just don't come back. And so that's important to know um, because sometimes interpreting what's really happening in our businesses isn't easy because all we hear are the voices that are loud, the coaches who are bashing clients. And that bashing of clients, this is another bullet point on my list here, you know, that bashing of clients in a very public setting online has had an impact in the industry. There's a lot of conversations happening on Instagram, on TikTok by clients who are saying stuff about our industry because of how they perceive that they are being looked at or, or, or perceived. And so, you know, kind of this disconnect. And I think some of that is just a natural extension of living in a, a social world. And we're not always thinking that we're having these really loud, really, um, negative conversations about the clients that we are here to quote unquote serve um, and they can hear us many of them and so i think that has added to this kind of negative vibe for some that has resulted in some salons some hairdressers losing business again clients just being done walking away you don't hear from them again you don't even realize that is what has happened also coming out of the coaching space you know was this whole conversation about Brands are bad. I get it. You know, I mean, there, people have their frustrations for all kinds of reasons, all kinds of things, but brands specifically, the manufacturing side of our industry, every bit of innovation that's kind of ever happened has happened out of them, often coming through hairdressers, but these are big companies that allow us to do much of what we do in the salon. So, so if we're having negativity, I would say as somebody who kind of tries to keep the big picture in mind, my suggestion would be to kind of sort out what it is that's bothering you and, and try to find your way to a brand that doesn't leave you with those feelings because very diverse, very big industry, all kinds of companies, all kinds of um, brand values attached to those companies. And, you know, it's not a one size fit all industry. So I, I, there's lots of good out there. So, but publicly all of this, you know, bashing and negativity aren't very good. A lot of anti-negative or anti-retail sentiment. That one drives me crazy. I don't care whether a salon's retail or not, to be perfectly honest, you know, from a really like in the weeds perspective, like the salon I go to, they don't retail and they have their reasons and it has nothing to do with brands. It has to do with um, the lack of interest and in everybody who's worked at that salon for years to, to do anything with retail. And the owner finally gave up and said, heck with it and decided to put the same effort they were putting into retail or lack of effort into building services. And it's worked well for them. I, I have friends who, who sell retail very actively, very kind of progressively, you know, um, very um, proactively for the client and who are doing really well, making lots of money 
And really, you can kind of point to success drivers, KPIs in their businesses that say that retail not only has a positive influence on the profitability of the salon, it has a, a positive influence on client retention as well and client satisfaction. So, you know, that's, that's interesting. But again, you've had, we've seen a lot of salons pull back on retail, stop retailing. And perhaps they weren't successful to begin with, but they're leaving money on the table, would be my opinion, that because clients are buying retail, they're buying a lot of retail. And not just pro brands, but all brands, but we need stuff to take care of our hair. And as hairdressing and, and the fashion around hair becomes more complex in many ways, we need more products. And so to even consider allowing us to go buy somewhere else other than through our salon or through whatever connections that we have to retail online or otherwise to even think about just ignoring that you know is a is a huge mistake in my estimation and again the good news for everybody is there's all kinds of best practices that prove that retail works and anybody 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 who tells you mathematically retail doesn't work there's only cash flow or whatever it is some foolish coaches are saying um, or that when you buy a product and have to rebuy that product after you've sold it, that that means you haven't made any money. That is nonsensical. That is anti-math, anti-money management, anti-financial literacy. If you buy a bottle for 10, you sell it for 20, you made 10 bucks, period, end of story. And you got the first 10 back and that's how you buy more retail. So, all right, next on coaches, tips are bad. A lot of conversation, tips are bad. Again, personal choice. Um, the danger in the tip conversation is too many have bought into the idea without an understanding of how to transition from taking tips to not taking tips. Again, it's a personal choice. I have no issues whatsoever with either of those options. Um, but if you are receiving tips and you want to move to a non-tipping model, just make sure you really truly understand the economics of tips because it's crazy. The average hairdresser in America is probably getting 25% of their take-home pay, maybe 30% of their take-home pay, some as high as 50% of their take-home pay. I'm talking take-home pay. It's really important. I'm not going to go into the formula to figure all that out here right now. But if you don't understand how to do that, you need to figure it out before you make decisions around whether you're going to take tips or not. Because a person, and I, I spoke to someone not too long ago who had taken this path, decided they were never that comfortable with the idea. They did well, but by it, their average tips were approaching 20%. Um, and then decided to make a turn and not do it anymore and did not make the proper adjustment in their pricing to make up for what they were losing. So, um, you know, a hundred dollar ticket really to make up for the tips, um, depending on whether you're a commissioner or independent, but you also have to figure in taxes because as soon as you put tip dollars, the equivalent into service dollars, the tax considerations change mostly by way of the, the traditions of within the industry. And so that $100 ticket plus a $20 tip needs to go probably to $130, maybe even $140, depending on how you manage your business. And that's at the ticket level. So me, the consumer, you say, oh, you don't have to tip me anymore. A lot of clients will say and have said in the past, because there's a long story behind the whole tipping conversation, um, wait, tips are an option. So I was paying $100, now you're going to force me to give you your tip. And, and say that I don't have to tip. How is that good for me as a client? That's just how a lot of clients feel. So I think, you know, that's an important consideration. Um, so a lot to think about when you are considering a change in your business model. And I would say that getting rid of tips is a fundamental business model change that can be added to all the other business model conversations, you know, that we're having. So, um, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, a lot to think about there.
the move to self-employment in the industry over the since pre-pandemic. Now, pre-pandemic, you know, I would say we were, we were probably around fifty percent or so of the industry was self-employed. In other words, people who own their own salons, traditional salons or rental salons, but they own a salon that has multiple people in it, paying rent or receiving wages, and then everybody who was independent put those two groups together, and we were we were above fifty percent. Post-pandemic, we are now probably in the 70% range. One of the industries with the highest rate of self-employment of any industry I can find. And that's a little scary because all the statistics about self-employment are not very good. The high failure rate of being in business for yourself um, should be a worry to anybody who's considering becoming self-employed. The worry doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It just means you should take the time to sort out whether or not you have what it takes to be one of the successful people, knowing that over 80% of people who become self-employed will fail at will, will fail at self-employment. And what's interesting there is that unlike being feeling that you failed in a quote unquote job, you're working for someone, you're a commission stylist, you're a team-based pay stylist, and things don't work out. More often than not, depending on where a person is in their career, there's a good chance they will go from one position then to another and potentially even to self-employment. But as soon as you get into the self-employment realm, your chances of failure go up. And although there's no research on this, my gut is knowing lots of people over the years that when people decide to quit self-employment, when they decide to quit being self-employed, they more often than not just are done. They leave the industry. And that's a big concern. And so I think part of what we're experiencing in the, the negative economic um, outcomes for so many in the industry, some of it has to do with this, that a lot of people went towards self-employment. It wasn't really something they were built for, and they have struggled, and they are part of this bigger conversation. A lot to consider. Um, I'm oversimplifying in many ways, and I've only gotten about halfway through my notes. Um, haven't even talked about pricing. There's a lot. My next podcast, I'm going to talk about pricing because that's complicated. And I think so many people struggle with it. Talk for a moment about language to begin to wrap up. You know, I've long talked about how the word artist frustrates me because we've, we've have gotten this weird point in the industry where everybody's an artist and that just can't be true. The new one coming out of pandemic, it's like the opposite. Now it's about being an entrepreneur. You're all entrepreneurs. No. Um, I would argue no. An entrepreneur is a person, you know, who is in business for themselves. You know, they create a business, they operate a business. But the better, to me, the ideal definition of, of entrepreneurship also includes an amount of innovation, interesting ideas, new services. You know, there's there's an edge um, that entrepreneurs have. I would argue over just those who are purely considered self-employed. And an entrepreneur is self-employed. But I would argue not all self-employed people are entrepreneurs. Words matter. And I think when we give ourselves titles, sometimes we, we assume we know more than we do. And that can be dangerous for any of us. So I think you know, that's a, an important thing to say. All right. <laughs> I have more I want to say, but I'm going to stop here. I'm out of time. I'm way out of time. So I'm going to wrap up and say thank you again for listening. I'm going to dig into this more next week. And um, as always, I'm, I'm so grateful that you are here. I encourage you to go visit me over at socialbeautymakers.com and sign up for my free weekly e-newsletter. Get some more content. I hope you listen to Sunday's Beautycast Network Mastering Beauty podcast. It is on a different channel, so you'll need to look for it on your favorite podcast platform, Beautycast Networks. Um, and actually, you don't need to include that. Just look for Mastering Beauty. 
And uh, again, weekly conversations. I'm having a blast over there. So I hope you will check it out. Lastly, one more time. Thank you so very much for tuning in. I am. Um, I love doing these. It, it's uh, it's therapeutic. <laughs> so in, in so many ways, I'll talk about that another time. Um, lastly, once again, um, I'm Gordon Miller, and I cannot wait to share more with you again next time.